The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me today. You know, we live in a time when understanding power and the abuse of power has tremendous importance personally and globally. What is power? Who gets it? Is power given or grabbed? Do we feel a sense of power in our personal lives? Do you fear power in your personal life, your work world? your relationships with others. Our guest today will expand our understanding of power. Our guest is Dacher Keltner, social psychologist and author of the book newly released in paperback, The Power Paradox, How Do We Gain and Lose Influence? Dacher Keltner is a full professor and the faculty director of the Berkeley Greater Good Science Center. An acclaimed researcher with over 190 publications, he is also the author of the book Born to be Good, The Compassionate Instinct, and he has a wonderful TEDx talk on compassion. He's a consultant on emotions for Facebook, Google, and was a consultant for the Disney Pixar movie Inside Out. He was also featured in the documentary I Am. Dr. Keltner writes for the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times, the London Times, the Wall Street Journal. You can find articles from him on many of those um, sources. Dr. Dachner Keltner, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. It's great to be with you, Suzanne. Okay, let's start. You've done so much in this area. Let's start. Give a backdrop by defining power. How would you define power? Well, this is, you know, really one of the hardest questions not only have social scientists faced, but I think it's a really important question we think about in our personal lives, as you suggest. And there is an increasing consensus that we define power not so much as dominance or force, which are one variety of, of power or a form of power, but really power most thoughtfully defined is your capacity to influence other people, to change their emotions, their thought patterns, their physical health, their economic well-being. So really, power is your capacity to influence other people. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things you say in the book that in a group, power varies as to who, what activity is being done, but it depends on a person's capacity to make a difference. And when I read that, I thought about in families, when it comes to tech problems, the children have all the power. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, right? I, I love your example, and I feel that too in my own family. You know, Suzanne, we tend to think of power as almost like a role, right? Well, they're the high-power people, the low-power people. But in actuality, and I think your audience would appreciate this, you know, our power fluctuates, our feeling of being able to influence other people fluctuates from context to context. And, and I got interested in this definition really in my personal life, which is that I would go to work at UC Berkeley and I felt like I had a certain amount of influence and power. And then I'd come home and take care of my four-year-old and my two-year-old and I'd feel like I have no power whatsoever. And I was like, <laughs> we have to really change how we think about power, not as, as a static role but really is a dynamic, subjective state that changes from context to context. Right. That's, that's definitely um, what most of us experience, especially when we talk about power being something that applies to small actions in everyday life, as well yeah. as global decisions by leaders. Now, maybe yeah. you could explain, because um, the greater good concept that 
that yeah. so, so much has been written about it because it's hard for us to get our head around, well, wasn't Hitler powerful and and yeah. weren't, you know, like, what is the greater good concept compared to that kind of power? Yeah, so really terrific question. And, and it really is the question of, you know, if you define powers, an individual's capacity to influence, what you, you, what you then ask, and I take this on in this book, The Power Paradox, is, okay, in any situation, you know, if I'm at work or if I'm in a community or I'm in a volunteer organization or at church or what have you, uh, how do I gain power, right? Who, who rises? And there are kind of there are two different ways of approaching this. And one is the greater good idea, like you say, Suzanne, and that really stems from the idea of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, uh, other people, that we gain power by advancing the interests of as many people as possible, the greater good. And we often do this through virtues like courage and sense of justice. And then the other perspective, and this is what people tend to stereotypically associate with power, is vice, right? It's Machiavellianism and sort of taking people down and manipulating and grabbing stuff. And that, too, in some contexts, although decreasingly so today, is how we get power. So really power can be found by advancing the greater good or, in some contexts, very self-serving manipulation, you know, when I was thinking about that idea of the main yeah. boss or the main coach, I liked your differentiation between status and power because I started yeah. thinking in one situation, the main coach was extremely critical. He yeah. had the power, he had a lot of power, but he had very little status with the kids. They did not like him. They never confided in him. So we could say, yeah, he had a certain kind of bully power, but he really didn't have the power that gives someone status, you know, in the eyes of other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sorry. Go ahead. You know, I think one of the most critical questions we can ask about power, and a lot of scientists have done this, for example, in looking at what presidents have lasting legacies in U.S. history. Uh, One of the questions we need to ask in our personal lives, too, is how do I have an enduring influence in the world or in my family or at work? And here status becomes really important and this distinction that you're drawing our attention to, Suzanne. So power is your capacity to influence, and status is the esteem and value and respect that you enjoy from other people. Mm -hmm. So your power in the long run, is only as good as your status. And if you're a bully and people start to feel queasy about you and they don't respect you, you're not going to have a, a, a long-standing influence in your social groups. Now, I, that really rang true to me when you discussed yeah. the many natural state experiments you did. I wonder if you could give some examples from the dorm. We all have kids who've lived in dorms. Um, The dorm studies, and you said these studies really were in factories, military groups, in terms of those important five social type of um, tendencies that really in the end resulted in the greatest amount of power. Can we speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, and, and you know, it's so funny, Suzanne, when you, when you ask people, you know, hey, who do you think is going to get power, you know, or who's going to be popular when your kids go to school, or who's going to get power when they join a new organization or, or you know, become part of a, a contemplative group? Uh, I think what happens in people's minds is we have this old stereotype that it's really kind of the Machiavellians that get power. And I think 500 years ago that was true. 300 years ago, 50 years ago, that was more true. Today, it's really different. And so what's happened, and I review in The Power Paradox, this book, is really interesting social scientists started to at, just do what we call natural state experiments. Like, if a bunch of strangers get together and they form a group, who's going to have influence and have the respect of the people around them? And so people, I did this work in dorms, right? Your kid goes off to college, how will she or he fare? Uh, we did this in a little basketball camp, summer camp. Who gets power in a basketball camp? Uh, other scientists have done this in military groups. What, you know, individuals rise in the military hierarchy or in organizations. And what you find is the Machiavellian sort of vice-based sociopath approach to power. That It may get you a little bit of attention, 
but it doesn't do well in the long haul. And instead, what I write about in the power paradox is really five social strategies that get you power in these natural state experiments. You've got to connect to people. Um, you, it, you have to be focused on the demands of the group, right? They really kind of uh, bring your competencies to bear on it. Uh, it really helps to be calm and not overreactive. It helps to um, have, be curious and propose wild things, right? And finally, and this is really counterintuitive, you, you gain in power by being kind. Uh, and in fact, one of the really strong predictors of keeping power in these groups is just how kind you are to other people. So I think those, those findings start to tell us that we have to rethink how we get power in our daily lives. I really think when you look close, they they really make a difference. And I want to add something that you yeah. speak about early on to that, and that is, in addition to the the calm and the openness to other suggestions, you know, the person yeah. who wants to do it their way and doesn't want to hear anything else is someone who eventually people get tired of. But you talk about being able to tell stories that promote uh, the human uh, goodness in people or telling stories. Why do you think that merits people getting power if they're kids in a dorm or guys in a military? You know, it's so striking. And, and what I try to do in the power paradox, as you nicely are capturing, Suzanne, is, you know, your power increasingly today, and this is really, do you have influence of your teenagers? Do you have influence at work or uh, wherever you may be, is really rooted in social intelligence and relational qualities, right? The, the degree to which you feel strongly connected to others. And what that means is that these old social practices have a lot of power in determining whether you have influence in the world, like storytelling. You know, one of the interesting observations about Abraham Lincoln, who is rated by historians as you know, probably our most influential uh, president, is he was, an, you know, he was an amazing storyteller. And in the most complicated political situations, he would tell these great stories. Uh, when I teach leaders of government and, you know, the military, they say the same thing, like, God, you know, that when you tell stories, you get people together, you teach about the values that matter, you make people laugh, you smooth over conflicts, you kind of unite and inspire. Mm-hmm. And so we did, this, we did this funny study where we had little basketball campers uh, and we studied who rose in power and influence. And we had this little this situation which we could kind of capture how well they told stories. And it was really the good storytellers that had the respect and, and attention of the peers. So storytelling is really powerful in the realm of influence. I, I actually observed that. Now, I had sons, and uh-huh. when pe- people think about talking and sharing with, with females, certainly we never stopped doing it. But that it was really true that when they were hanging together, whoever could tell a story, and often the story showed their own vulnerability. It was intended to make everyone laugh, which is a gift in and of itself, but so that the... You know, being human and being able to show your frailty is something that creates intimacy and that yeah. allows you to really have power in a group. Yeah, you know, and I love your deeper analysis, you know, and, and you know, that storytelling makes people feel vulnerable. And, that, and the great stories often have elements of vulnerability in what the storyteller says. And, and, you know, we found in yet another study, when you get social groups like fraternities and sororities together, when, and we had them tell little stories about their weekends or their friends, it was really the gifted storyteller who kind of got everybody laughing together uh, and looking at each other, sharing eye contact, who actually had more power. So the social is really important to power. Mm. Now... One of the things, the, the title of your book is The Power <laughs> Paradox. Now, that's a kind of provocative title. Um, yeah. What is it that you mean by the power paradox? Yeah, you know, well, the power paradox, it sums up 20 years of study of power, and, and it's this, which is that, you know, we gain power and status and respect by being good to the group, right? By telling stories and empathizing and 
really acknowledging people and expressing gratitude and the like. Uh, so we rise in power through these pro-social tendencies, but regrettably, the experience of power, you know, when we feel like we're at the top of the game or the master of the universe, takes away those very abilities that got us power in the first place and brings out more impulsive behavior, more selfish behavior, and more and behaviors like in the Enron collapse that are destructive for the group. So we get power by being bringing out the good in other people, and then regrettably power can often make us behave in really inappropriate ways. Now, after the break, I want us to talk about some of your experiments, but would you say at one point you talk about it really eroding our focus and sometimes creating corruption? Are you saying that in the majority of cases, when we have the experience of power, I think you almost said, you know, you're flooded with dopamine. Do you think neurologically we're wired to become less good to each other? Well, you know, that's, I mean, that's a really deep question, right? What are our basic tendencies that are wired into the Mm. brain? And I think that evolution has produced a brain that is probably two thirds self-interested and that just is how we survive and power releases those tendencies and we become greedier and more aggressive and more sexual and the like, or sexually inappropriate. But a, a big chunk of our brain, as I write about in Born to be Good, is pro-social and compassionate and kind. And in certain people, and in, in many contexts, power will bring out the, the brighter side to human nature. So it really depends on the individual, as always, and then the specific context you're in. Mm, I think that's in probably... General, in general, power tends to make us a little bit more selfish. Mm. So what we're going to see is that you almost need, and I want, I want our listeners to hear, because they're dramatic, yeah. some of the studies, but one of the things I know you're going to be talking about is we need, no matter where we rise in the ladder, to remain self-reflective so we then can decide whether or not this power is bringing us what really matters in life or is really heading us to a place that really is probably not good for us and we see what it does to other people. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live and we're lucky enough to be speaking with Dacher Keltner, social psychologist, the author of The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What is your purpose? In the journey that we call life, our values are pre-programmed into us before we're born. During our lives, we pick up life's lessons and soul connections along the way. We explore this path on Soul Sessions with Solstice, featuring hosts Delana Davis and Rita McRae. Our program is designed to help you more confidently live from your heart and not just your head. Tune in live for Soul Sessions with Solstice every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with host Thomas Rosenberg. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as Thomas speaks with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking about power with Dacher Keltner. He's the social psychologist and author of Born to be Good and The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. So, Decker, how, what happens to us? We get to a place where we start to feel power, and often things go downhill from there. Can you tell <laughs> us? <laughs> maybe you can tell us about what you found in some of these experiments. Yeah, you know, I mean, Lord Acton, the great... Uh, social critic of the 19th century that made this famous observation that, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you look out into the world and, you know, you see, you know, uh, politicians doing inappropriate things and pop stars and athletes and so forth. And we wanted to ask the question, you know, can you produce these abuses of power in the lab with ordinary citizens like you and me when they're just randomly assigned to a position of power? And, And here's what we find, you know, our, one of our first studies uh, has come to be known as the Cookie Monster Study. Uh, and what we did, Suzanne, is we brought three people to the lab, and then we randomly assigned one person to the position of power. And they were the leader and evaluated the other people. And then we had them for an hour do kind of a boring task by design. They kind of gathered information and wrote policies for the university. So they're working away. Halfway into this study, we present a plate of chocolate chip cookies. And these are young undergrads. They're hungry. Everybody has a cookie. Uh, And then we ask this question, who takes the last cookie on the plate? And indeed, uh, it was twice as likely to be the high-power person, right? They grabbed that cookie. And we coded. We had videotaped how they ate. And we actually coded how they ate. And the high-power people were more likely to be eating with their mouths open, lips smacking, and cookie crumbs falling all over their sweaters, right? So mm. that tells us power kind of unleashes very basic tendencies to gratify our impulses. And to not even care or discern <laughs> that you might be considered selfish for not dividing yeah. it in five pieces, or and even <laughs> that the way the way you ate is somewhat disrespectful. You know, and, and it's even doubly ironic because we know from the scientific literature and intuition that we pay more attention to powerful people, and yet they're behaving in more inappropriate ways. And, you know, that was the first finding in this literature. And then what you find is, you know, um, you know, if you are interested in shoplifting, it turns out wealthier white kids are more likely to shoplift than poorer kids of different ethnic backgrounds. We did this recent study that got a lot of buzz where we position an, uh, an undergraduate in California at a, ped- a pedestrian walkway on a road near the Berkeley campus. They stat- stood next to the, the pedestrian zone. Uh, by California law, drivers are supposed to stop, and we just coded, do more powerful, fancy cars, uh, ignore this rule of the road more often, and we found drivers of poor cars stop 100% of the time. Drivers of the fancy BMWs stop they blaze through the pedestrian zone 46% of the time, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, just everywhere you turn, there are these findings that power unleashes socially inappropriate behavior. And what's interesting, and this is where we're all responsible for promoting it in a way, is so there is an assumption often that if you're that powerful, if you have that much money to have a car like that, you're above the law. Yeah. Um, and... The and and in some ways you put yourself and other people in danger. But and the shoplifting. When I read about the shoplifting, the wealthier people being shop, being the shoplifters, I thought also of the problem. And this has annoyed me in stores. If there's a teenager in that store, the security guard is on that kid, and that's the yeah. ageism stigma. Meanwhile, a middle-aged yeah. woman my age <laughs> is stealing makeup. Three counters over, but she's dressed beautifully, 
Well, nobody figures it's her. So it's it perpetuates now all they and all we will hear about, you know, is the teen who stole the record or the CD, and that perpetuates the another stigma. One is ageism, poverty, etc. That we seem yeah. to project onto those who actually have less power, more negative traits. Yeah, you know, Suzanne. I mean, your example. Uh, speaks to, I think, one of our deepest societal concerns that I really started to uncover in writing The Power Paradox. You know, one is people with power think they're above the law, and you see this all the time. You know, when I did the car study uh, and I was on a show like yours, I had a police officer call in and he said, you know, it's amazing. When I stop drivers of fancy cars who have just run a red light or broken the law, they give me a lecture about the job that I should be doing, you know, that mm. they're above this law. Go go find real crime. But the other thing that really is worrisome is that we over-punish less powerful people for, for violating laws, and we, pay, we disregard the, the more privileged violators of laws. And, you know, what you find in a lot of different contexts, like the, the criminal, within the criminal justice system, how we treat teenagers who are poor if they are in possession of drugs compared to wealthy teenagers, there's no comparison. You know, poor kids uh, take a beating. And that's, I think, a deep concern that you're pointing out. Well, and it goes hand in hand with when, if you think about the power, power paradox and the fact that there's a place that many people move from gaining the power to sliding into this assumption that they're above the law, with that comes a tendency to treat others as yeah. having no power. And yeah. I think the backlash on that is a frightening one. Because if I was a teen who was constantly searched or blamed, I think I would feel humiliated. And we know the studies on humiliation go yeah. hand in hand with anger and retaliation. So we, yeah. And then we worry about violence. But in some unwitting way, we all perpetuate it. You know... Um, you, you, for 20 years, I've been teaching power and like, watch out for your abuses. Cause we know when people feel powerful at work, for example, they're more likely to swear at people or exclude them or bully or reject them or sexually har- harass them. All these impulsive consequences of power. And then I started to think about, wow, what if you're the recipient of the sexual harassment or the bullying or the humiliation, like you're saying? And we now have this new neurophysiological evidence showing that when I'm, when somebody's bullying me or coercing me or being impulsive around me, um, and, and your audience, I'm sure, has felt this in their lives, as I have, I get stressed out, I have elevated cortisol, my immune system dysfunctions, my brain is hyperactive and sensitive to threats and danger. It puts me into this perilous threat state that is mm-hmm. very bad for my functioning in society. Uh, and so that is one of the really un- alarming consequences of these abuses of power, is what it does to other people. Mm. And I always tell this story because it bears on how people somehow can do a non-aggressive pushback. In one case, in fact, a researcher was doing a study on bullying because that's not a legal issue. Only harassment due to gender, race, sex, etc. is. And um, the bully had taken on and offended and humiliated a woman for the hundredth time. And yeah. she couldn't leave the job. But the next day, Dacker, she finds a bouquet of flowers on her desk that says, <clears throat> we get it and we're all with you. Now, yeah. that, that group showed such power, I think, in offsetting the bullying yes. because it was the group against the bully, although the bully didn't even know it. Yeah. You know, and, and it's so amazing you, you bring this up. I mean, I, I teach the, what happens in organizations, uh, you know, when, when bullies perpetrate these toxic behaviors and they insult and harass and scoff at and scold and, 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 and belittle. Uh, and one of the strongest counters, and I think this is why bullying actually is on the decline, some studies show in schools and at workplaces, is other people bond together and mm-hmm. counter the bully. 
you know, and what better way than to deliver flowers because that's empowering for many mm. adults. Yeah, it's really an important one. So now what we need to speak about is if we become more self-reflective and we find ourselves yeah. um, racing through pedestrian pathways, we have <laughs> to start to think about how are we going to refocus and reset our power in a different kind of way. Yeah. And do you, do you find that people have talked about coming to realize they're doing it and starting to use some of the suggestions you have in the book or, or are you giving them as something that we might not have realized could really divert the negativity? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, in a way, this is the most important question, which is, you know, when you feel powerful at work or with your kids, uh, or with your romantic partner, or, you know, your friends in a community organization, in an ironic way, even though you feel great, you feel invincible, dopamine is surging in your brain, you're most vulnerable to really doing problematic things. You're at, and you're at this fork in the road, like, you know, okay, I feel great, I've just done great things for this team, whether it's my family or my teenagers, now you got to watch it, right? Because next thing you know, you can you can lose your empathy and do these things. So, you know, the last chapter of The Power Paradox uh, takes on that question. And in part, it was motivated by the fact that I just teach a lot of families and healthcare providers and mental health care providers and leaders like who are facing this issue of like, man, I just made this huge mistake because of power. And what I talk mm-hmm. about, it actually, it actually, you know, this is where clinical psychology is profoundly relevant, which is just be aware of your feelings, you know. And the minute you feel, the minute the thought pops into your head, like, wow, I'm, I'm invincible. <laughs> or, you know, my organization would be better if I was in charge. You're in trouble. You know, that is arrogance. Um, stay focused on other people uh, as a key. So there are a lot of practical things I take up in the um, power paradox. Well, we do, we do think that the person who cannot self-reflect and can only project negativity or disdain on others is a pretty dangerous person because yeah. we're not going to be able to gain any leverage with collaborative discussion or um, s- mutual reflection. And the marriages for which one cannot see the that the power has to be shared and as you say nations that allow for a kind of collaborative mutual share of democracy do better and their people are happier so um the ability to self-reflect on a global level for leaders as well as in a marriage or with kids in a fraternity becomes really a very important dynamic the other thing that i go ahead well, no, and, and I'm so glad, Suzanne, you cited the marriage finding, because those are some of the early findings in this literature, like the more partners reflect on their power, give up, empower their partners, the healthier their marriage, and, and the same is proving to be true at the international level. I, I would probably add, and you have youngsters too, is that I think then that becomes the model for how power is used by children. You know, if you're off the charts speeding through uh, crosswalks, don't you think your teenager is going to do that? So, yeah. I mean, yeah. there, it's, there's a lot of collateral damage to, yeah. you know, getting too wrapped up in terms of the power. Um, yeah. So, what is the first thing a person should do if they start to think, if they self-reflect, do I really think I'm above the law? Um, am I really acting in a way that would morally send my kids a good message? Um, am I treating people in a way that I would never want my kids to treat their spouses? What is the first step a person could do? Well, you know, it's funny. I think that cutting across the, 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 the literatures that I review in The Power Paradox is, you know, I think in the, in the deepest way, what the, the big mistakes of feeling powerful come from an over-focus on the self. And by implication, the solution to the power paradox and the way to make the most of your power is to stay focused on other people. And I love this quote um, that a journalist wrote about Abraham Lincoln, who's rated by historians as our greatest president. 
where the, the journalist Thurlow Weed said that Lincoln, his remarkable genius was that he heard all that, uh, from people that came to see him. He saw them and he wrote, he read everything that people wrote to him. He just stayed focused on other people. And in the fluctuations of power in our daily lives, if you, you know, in a meeting with a work colleague, just ask yourself, well, where, where is this person coming from today? And what, and I'll ask questions that kind of respect that. Or if you're with your teenager and you're in a tough moment and you stay focused on their, their state, uh, you'll do well in, in using your power for the good. Mm, so it's, it's a beautiful um, quote. It's, it's about turning the focus from self to other uh, yeah. as, a, as a step that actually enhances your power as well as the power of the other person. Yeah, we are going to take a brief break. We're going to come back and delineate some of these actual um, fivefold path steps to power. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Dacker Keltner. He's the social psychologist. He's the author of the book, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dacker Keltner, social psychologist and the author of The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence. And we're actually just about to talk about how do we regain our power if we found that we sort of headed down a path of total focus on self in a way that actually ultimately hurts self, really takes power away and doesn't do great things to the people around us who start to feel powerless. Um, what are some of those um, pathway steps that you recommend, Dacker? Well, you know, the, what I, I took stock, you know, when we think about this fork in the road where you can use your power to really enhance the lives of other people or you can become seduced by your own feelings of power and, and, and harm 
the greater good of the people around you. I took stock of a variety of different literatures to arrive at some really practical recommendations. We've talked about one, which should be very familiar to your audience, which is self-awareness, you know, just recognizing your feelings uh, of power and the feelings of other people, right? Um, a second one is, is in the social realm, which is to practice respect, you know, just to remember how important the people's social esteem is, their sense of dignity uh, it activates very important regions of the brain. And, and just to honor that, really, to cultivate a language of appreciating others. Uh, a third is to practice humility. You know, I'm doing a lot of research now on awe, getting out in nature and having your mind blown. And what we find is it makes you humble. It makes you, in a way, better able to use power for the good. And the final one, you know, and this is counterintuitive, but I think that when people have really thought hard about power through their personal lives, they see it everywhere, which is to give, you know, to just really center your life around giving ideas and time and resources and affection and love to other people. And ironically, what the social science is showing us is in giving, we actually become more powerful. Um, mm. So those are four ideas that I talk about at the end of The Power Paradox. Now, I, I couldn't help but, of course, start to think about mindfulness as yeah. as, as underscoring yeah. many of these because when we think of being mindful of others, um, being grateful, being grateful of the moment in time, the bird that we're looking at, uh, the marriage that we have, of course, that actually is a way to refocus off the power trip and back into the use, the real use of power. Uh, when you mentioned the giving, I thought of the experiment you wrote about the generosity one, where yeah. if you, or maybe you can tell the, our listeners that it's, it's that fallout from me being generous to you. Yeah, you know, and I love your connection to mindfulness, Suzanne. I think that's actually an interesting hypothesis to test. So yeah, you know, giving is really interesting, which is that uh, I think, when I put the literature together, I think you could almost think of this as a, as a virtuous cycle of generosity, which is if I'm in an organization and I give to somebody else, I derive a, a, a reward boost in my brain. That person then becomes more productive and generative in other interactions that I'm not around, right? If I express affection to somebody or gratitude, that person will be inspired to work better. And then what happens is those people, I'm not even there, are, are talking about me in a positive light that gives me a strong reputation and a strong status in the group that boosts my power. So you can trace scientifically acts of generosity in social networks and show how they actually make teams stronger and boost your capacity to influence. Mm, it's really, I think, giving is very contagious, and I really do think it boosts power. In the blog I wrote about this, I talked about a nurse's aide, Esther, who I think is one of the most powerful people I know. And there's yeah. something about this woman who she never, she, she was, I knew her because she worked with my mother, but her eyes were everywhere. And her capacity to read people, pick up a shift for someone else, help someone else's patient, help anyone, gave her tremendous power in a setting where she's a nurse's aide. This, the, the folks running that unit went to her before they did anything. Dacker, it was remarkable to me that I felt it yeah. was earned by such, such a sense of passing forward goodness at with no one asking questions and no one demanding it, it just happened. And I think that's yeah. a little bit like the the whole idea of the the use of power and the feeling of being empowered as a result of focusing on others and using yourself as a tool for the greater good. Yeah, what a what a terrific example. I wish we had data that that spoke to the richness of your example. You know, it's interesting, Suzanne. Now, when I teach power, I was just with uh, 60 women who are running Kaiser, our, one of the healthcare providers out here in California. And I always ask this question, like, think of the last time you really felt powerful. And I would say about 85% of the time, people like these women I was with 
um, we're leading Kaiser, talk about Esther's experience of, I just helped people, I lifted up this person's career, and I felt more inspired and powerful than I felt in 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so that tells us generosity is intertwined with feelings of our own power. Well, I I want our listeners to know, because I was so touched by this, in terms of you practicing what you preach, I want us for our folks to know that you were as you it's described that you had experiences in a restorative justice program with prisoners yeah. in San Quentin and you're the yeah. person who wrote the brief. Um, yeah. and in so doing, is this right? You curtailed solitary confinement in maximum security prisons in California? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. That was one of the great privileges of my life. Um, yeah, you know, um, I actually grew up in a um, tough neighborhood or a tough rural town where a lot, you know, um, did, a lot of young people didn't have the breaks that I had. I had parents really interested in education and so forth. And a lot of my friends, um, I just started to think about it, and I write about this at the end of The Power Paradox. My friends, you know, didn't go to college, got into drugs, um, suffered like a lot of Americans are suffering today, even died young. Uh, and that experience has always impelled me to go to where there are people who don't get the chances I had. And one was I volunteer in San Quentin prison. Uh, and I just started to talk to prisoners about solitary confinement and what cruel and unusual punishment that is. And then as a result of that experience and some of the science I do, got to write a brief on how solitary confinement 80,000 Americans are in solitary confinement where they don't, uh, mm. they don't see other human beings. They don't get to contact them. They, when their families visit, they can't touch them. Um, and so I wrote a brief on the, the psychological damage caused by that. Uh, that was part of the Center for Constitutional Rights case against solitary confinement in California. And that won. Uh, and there were other briefs, of course. And it got thousands of people out of solitary confinement in maximum security prisons here. And I think we'll see the movement expand nationwide as it is. It's such a wonderful example of using power or achieving power by giving and making a difference mm-hmm. to the to good of all those, those, those men and women. Um, I want people, we have more time, but I want people to know how they can find you, your documentary, yeah. your TED Talks, and, sure. and the books. Yeah. How they do that? So, well, uh, the, the Power Paradox in my other books, you can pick up off Amazon, or, and it, it may be in your local bookstore, The Power Paradox. Uh, and then I have uh, Born to be Good and The Compassionate Instinct or other um, books out there. Uh, just as importantly, um, we created the Greater Good Science Center, which is a free resource, uh, and it's greatergood.berkeley.edu, which really details in very friendly writing the science and practice of things like gratitude and compassion and empathy, respect, which we've been talking about. Um, and then, you know, I have TED Talks, and uh, people may want to check out Tom Shadyak's documentary, I Am, which was on Netflix which I have a small role in. Uh, so there's just a lot of stuff out there to engage with this material. And are you, you're also part of that happiness project with the use of nature to enhance happiness. Yeah. Also not, yeah I signed up for that and I want folks to know I get these um, little texts. Do you want to see a picture of nature on a regular basis, which is wonderful. <laughs> I yeah, really believe you know, it. Yeah. Go ahead. I do too. It's really something. Well, if you were going based on this, the power, if we go back to the power paradox and all that we've spoken about today, what type of take-home message could you um, share with our listeners? What can they take from all your research, all your work? Well, you know, it's it's funny. Um, I it, it's a message that I also wrote about in Born to Be Good, which and and the two idea books really converge on this, which is, and it really struck me, you know, um, reading Karen Armstrong, the great religious historian's book on human societies, and she notes that 2,500 years ago, all the great societies, from Buddhist to Christian to Jewish to 
um, Hindu, we're, we're really converging on one idea that, that makes society strong and that individuals feel empowered when they practice, and it's kindness. Um, and I do think that cutting across the themes in the power paradox is the idea, if you just stay bold and strong and committed to kindness, uh, the data show you're going to do pretty well. Young high schoolers get more dates. People do better work. They have stronger families. Uh, so I think very counterintuitively, our power is found in kindness. So I, I even think, did you not say at one point, I love your message, it's survival of the kindest? <laughs> I did. Someone, that, was, uh, yeah. that was in Born to be Good. Yes, yeah, and it, it's just a wonderful message. Um, Dacker, I want to thank you again for all, actually all your work and the power of your studies. Today you gave us the gift of really understanding many, many aspects of power and really inspiring us to reach out to make a difference. Um, so I really want to thank you for your work and for coming on the show. Well, thanks for an amazing conversation, Suzanne. Thank you. I want to thank my listeners. Now, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes. This show by this evening will be a podcast on those sites. Uh, mostly, I want you to remember you can drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.